On the evening of August 26, 1883, the denizens of the Sunda Strait experienced the fury of Krakatoa, the volcano at the heart of their community. After a thousand years of waiting, it unleashed a torrent of lava, ash, and pumice. However, much of this had yet to reach the islands of Sumatra and Java, where the Dutch colonizers and the local islanders dwelled. Instead, Krakatoa's eruption heralded the first of many tsunamis, a wall of water taller and faster than anything the people of the area had ever seen. On Sumatra, in the coastal town of Katimbong, local controller Willem Beierink and his clerk, Mr. Tojika, scurried up a coconut tree and held on for dear life. Below them, everything the Dutch had built and everything Tojika's people had built before that was decimated in an instant. Mothers screamed as they raced in vain to save their children. Livestock let out piercing cries as their large bodies were hurled like rag dolls into the jungle. Buildings splintered. The new market that had only just that afternoon been opened was reduced to gray sludge. Even in the coconut tree, Willem and Tochika were blasted by the waves. Their hands dug into the sharp wood of the tree trunk, but some minor scrapes were a small inconvenience next to the cold, wet death that befell those below. If Krakatoa could have laughed, it would have. Willem and Tojika thought they only needed to survive this one tsunami, this one moment of peril. In truth, the volcano had much more planned for them. This was only the beginning. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Bill. Every Monday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. From the first recorded earthquake in ancient China in 1600 BCE to Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans in 2005, natural disasters have plagued mankind for the entirety of our existence. Learning about these events is humbling, but it also demystifies what used to seem like the wrath of the gods. Tectonic plates crashing together, ocean water being sucked into a vortex, massive columns of air twisting into a funnel. We now know what makes these disasters tick, but they remain just as deadly. The following phenomena all fall under the category of natural disasters. Earthquakes, landslides and mudslides, volcanoes, extreme heat, extreme winds, lightning, wildfires, floods, drought, tornadoes, winter weather, hurricanes, and tsunamis. Each of these has the ability to not only kill, but to wipe out entire civilizations. When they strike, they remind us that despite being the dominant life form on the Earth, 
We are nothing compared to the geological and atmospheric forces of the planet. This is our second episode on Krakatoa, a volcano that erupted in 1883, killing thousands and destroying civilization in the Sunda Strait. Last week, we followed the volcano's ancient origins and experienced the first few hours of the infamous August 26th and 27th eruption. This week, we'll cover the remaining 24 hours of the eruption and learn about the global impact of the volcano. Could Krakatoa devastate Indonesia in the modern day? As 8 p.m. on August 26th approached, Krakatoa settled in for the night. It continued to fill the air and water with sulfur, but for the time being, it was done with big eruptions. However, smaller bangs could still be heard throughout the night. If it could dream, it would have perhaps imagined the horrors it had in store for the morning. Back in Katimbang, Willem and Tojaka held on for dear life down at the beach. Further up the hill, Willem's wife Johanna and their children were also fighting the tsunami. Luckily, they were at a higher elevation. Gathering in Johanna's bedroom on the second floor provided them with adequate protection. Nevertheless, the experience was terrifying. Outside, it sounded as if the world was ending. Johanna could only hold her children and hope for a quick death. Water and pumice pelted the house, destroying the outhouses, the servants' quarters, the stables, and any other one-story buildings outside. The tsunami burst through the front door and filled the hallways. Johanna trembled, praying that the water would not reach their level. As it began to seep in underneath the door and through the windows, she was sure that this was the end. But eventually, the sounds died down and the water receded back under the door. After a few more moments of holding the children, Johanna rejoiced to hear Willem calling for them. He yelled, Wife, wife, come downstairs quickly. Just jump and I'll catch you. She thought he was being silly at first. Why would they need to jump? Couldn't they just walk right down the stairs? But then she emerged into the hallway and saw the damage the tsunami had done. Their home was in ruins and the staircase had been ripped from the wall. Regardless, Willem rejoiced to see that she and the children were safe. As he helped them down, he turned to Tojika, ordering him to turn the horses and animals loose. He now realized how foolish he was to think that staying in the colony was a good idea. After tonight, there would be no such thing as Katimbang. But that was only half of it. Indeed, by night's end, there might not even be a Sumatra. Out on the waters of the Sunda Strait, Captain Lindemann of the Dutch passenger ship Loudon was doing his best to keep his ship afloat. Everyone on deck was singed from spending hours shoveling the sticky hot substance off the decks. They had to keep at it. Even just a foot of ash buildup 
could weigh the ship down enough to sink it. The volcano was also producing lightning storms, and Lindemann wrote in his log that lightning struck the main mast five or six times. Mud rain also covered the deck. Even stranger, the mud had a green glowing quality. This is a phenomenon known as St. Elmo's fire, which basically involves disruption in an electrical field leading to a strange glow. The green phosphorescence crept down the mast toward the deck. The sailors feared these were evil spirits there to sink the ship. On top of everything else, the captain now had a superstitious crew. He worried they would start throwing themselves into the ocean. If not out of fear, then out of exhaustion. They had been at sea for 12 hours. Back on Sumatra, the Bayerink family traveled with about a thousand locals up into the hills of the island, trying to get as far away from the beaches as they could. Johanna was doing her best to remain calm for the children, but this was unlike anything she had ever lived through. They too were experiencing the mud rain, which burned their skin as it fell. They were also occasionally struck by falling lava rocks, branding them with gashes and bruises. As Johanna lifted a hand up to her sore neck, she was horrified to feel something cold and sticky. Screaming, she jumped back into Willem's arms. As he squinted through the ash, he realized she had black leeches all up and down her neck. They must have crawled up her back as they waded through the water at the ruins of their home. Moving to the privacy of the trees, Willem carefully removed the creatures from her body. But that is all he could do. They had no salve to apply and no time regardless. They had to keep moving. Already exhausted, they pushed back onto the road. After the most unpleasant hike of their lives, the group finally made it to a village in the hills. The Byrinks took up residence in the one hut, while thousands of locals tended to their wounded outside. Some of the islanders called out to Allah, begging for relief from the stinging ash, the hot air, and the crashing waves still destroying their homes by the seaside. As they settled in for the night, it seemed that perhaps their prayers were answered. However, as midnight passed and the 26th became the 27th, Krakatoa entered into a new phase of its development. The god was about to go nova, ascending from the earth in a series of cataclysmic explosions unlike anything seen before on planet Earth. The volcano was entering its Plinian phase, an eruption in which the volcano emits a massive ash cloud. This ash is deadly, as it has been superheated by a mixture of water and magma inside the caldera. The seawater continues to vaporize within the volcano, sending more and more ash, smoke, and gas into the atmosphere. At 5.30 a.m. on Monday, August 27th, the first of four terrible eruptions rang out from the island. The sky was filled with even more pumice, and another tsunami was generated. Due to the chaotic nature of the event and the limited technology of the time, the exact timeline of each catastrophic moment throughout the eruption is somewhat muddy. 
There may have been dozens of tsunamis between the 26th and 27th, caused by either water displacement as debris fell into the ocean, or by the shock waves of the earth shaking and cracking below the water. Whatever the exact sequence, by 6.30 a.m., Captain Lindemann aboard the Loudon noted that the west coast of Java had seen near total devastation. This was across the strait from the Bayerinks who remained on the opposite island of Sumatra. What the crew observed along the beaches of Java shocked them. Lindemann, no doubt, had to squint through the clouds of smoke to make out the details. As he looked out onto the ocean, he could see that new smokestacks were rising from the water and emitting sulfuric gas. It was while looking through these dense clouds that he got his first glimpse of the coast. He had been keeping an eye out for the light of the Fourth Point Lighthouse. The lighthouse keeper was extraordinarily diligent, always making sure that the light was running so that no ship ran afoul of the coral reefs close to shore. But this morning, there was no light. At least, not that Lindemann could see through the smoke. Then, the smoke parted, and he learned why there was no light from the Fourth Point Lighthouse. It was because there was no longer any lighthouse at all. The latest tsunami had wiped the beach clean, rising dozens of feet into the air and hurling a 600-ton piece of coral into the lighthouse. All that was left was rubble. In just another few hours, Krakatoa would produce a blast so massive that it would generate the loudest sound ever heard on Earth. Next, we'll follow the final hours of the eruption and learn which of the colonists and islanders survived. Now, back to the story. On Monday, August 27th at 5.30 a.m., Krakatoa had just erupted for the first time that day. It would erupt three more times, terrorizing the people of Java and Sumatra. The second explosion was around 6.45 a.m., and it likely generated yet another tsunami. These massive waves were unpredictable. They bounced off of each other, changing course randomly in the waters of the strait. Typically, tsunamis are not that dangerous out at sea before they hit the coast. They're still building steam. For a ship on the water, it usually just feels like the ocean is a little bumpier than usual. But for the crew of the Loudon, an errant wave proved to be their greatest challenge yet. Captain Lindemann saw it approaching from the horizon, initially barely able to make it out against the black sky. His stomach sank as he realized what was about to befall them. An expert sailor, he quickly calculated that their only chance was to ride into the wave. If they were caught beneath it, they would be crushed. Everyone would perish almost instantly. And if it caught them sideways, it would roll them over. Once again, everyone would die. Riding into the wave, if successful, would allow them to break over the crest of the water and sail safely down the other side out into the Indian Ocean. But it was easier said than done. 
The BBC version of the story depicts the captain as having to actually tie himself to the ship's steering wheel so as to prevent the rudder from turning and crashing the ship. In his journal, Lindemann wrote that the ship met the wave head-on and the Loudon was lifted up with a dizzying rapidity and made a formidable leap. All on deck experienced the physics of being lifted a hundred feet in the air, then rapidly descending. Though their stomachs were likely in rough shape, the crew survived. Lindemann's plan worked, and the Loudon slid down the back of the wave, making it safely back out into the ocean. They were the lucky ones. Once the crew got their bearings, they were able to watch as the southern Sumatran coastline, including the towns of Katimbang and Telok Betong, were obliterated by the latest tsunami. The casualties were growing into the tens of thousands. Out in the center of the strait, the unfeeling volcano prepared for its final two eruptions. At 8.20 a.m., the third blast of the day rang out across the water. It sent more tsunamis to kill whoever was left along the coast. On the Loudon, the crew continued to watch in grief. On inland Sumatra, the Byerink family awoke to find that little had changed since the night before. They were still taking shelter in the village's one hut while the natives camped outside. The sky was still black as night, and pumice continued to rain down on the roof and the thousands of villagers surrounding it. There was likely little to do other than to attempt to calm the children. It's unclear whether the family and the villagers even had time to pack food or other provisions. Johanna felt all they could do was wait for rescue. Willem didn't know whether there was even anyone else left to rescue them. Rather than arguing over this, they should have been running further inland. The most recent explosion unleashed a new horror that was heading their way. Krakatoa now presented one of its most abominable creations, a pyroclastic flow. An avalanche of ash, pumice, and lava stormed down the slopes of the volcano toward the water. But rather than stop there, the cloud of death vaporized the top layer of water, creating a steam bed that lifted it and sent it traveling across the ocean toward the shore of Sumatra. It was not unlike a hurricane of fire traveling at 200 miles an hour. When it hit the shore, there was very little left for it to damage. But the size and speed of the pyroclastic flow meant that it could now travel beyond the beach up into the hills of Sumatra. The very location where the Byerinks and the remaining villagers were now taking shelter. Johanna sat in the hut, holding her children. She prayed for salvation. She didn't know how long they could go without supplies in this poisoned landscape. She lifted her head up at the sound of someone screaming off in the woods. The scream was followed by another, then another. Her heart sank as she perceived a faint, building roar at the edge of her hearing. Was there another tsunami? All the way up here? If that were possible, then they were doomed. It was not a tsunami, 
But the pyroclastic flow arriving to judge those who thought themselves free of Krakatoa's wrath. The flow was a massive wall of churning smoke, pumice, and ash. It rolled forward at an incredible speed. It swarmed the thousands of villagers outside in an instant, horribly burning them. One man stumbled toward the hut, ripping the door open and shutting it behind him. He screamed, close the windows. Willem quickly complied. Then, what little light was left in the world was extinguished as everything became totally black. The last thing Johanna saw was pitch black ash rising from beneath the floorboards. Willem lost all hope. According to Johanna's journal, he said, where is the knife? I will cut all our wrists, and then we shall be sooner released from our suffering. Suddenly, Johanna was thrown to the ground as the full force of the pyroclastic flow fell upon them. The air was sucked from her lungs. She was littered with lumps of pumice. She tried to stand, but the force of the flow kept pushing her back down onto the floor. All around her, she could hear the natives shouting for Allah. Soon, more of the locals from outside came running inside to try and get some respite from the deadly cloud of ash. Johanna was kicked, stepped on, collided with. She wanted to get up to run away, but her back felt powerless. Regardless, she summoned all her strength to try and get her body to move. It was like lifting herself from a vat of sticky tar. Every muscle and every external force seemed to be working to get her to lie back down. She pushed and pushed until she was on both feet. Her back remained hunched over. Her neck was craned toward the floor. She didn't know it yet, but she was severely burnt thus limiting her range of motion. She hobbled toward the door. Johanna was a horrific sight. Covered in red burn marks and black ash, her dress ripped and dangling off of her. Making it to the door, she attempted to open it, but found that it had melted shut. The strain proved too much for her, and she collapsed back to the floor. Ash flew up around her. Time lost meaning as images, sounds, and smells came and went, her mind only semi-conscious. Everything was darkness and sulfur. During one spurt of consciousness, Johanna looked up to see that the door had been blown open. She forced herself back to her feet, somewhat more easily this time, and pushed through the opening. Making it through the door, Johanna tripped and fell down the stairs. Immediately, she recognized her mistake in coming outside. The ash on the ground was much hotter here, and the falling pumice stung with each drop. All she could do was cover her face with her hands and continue to stumble forward to find something, someone, anything at all. Back out in the Sunda Strait, the apocalypse was nearly complete. The beaches were barren, wiped clean by tsunamis and pyroclastic flow. Anyone who had been caught on them was not only dead, but their bodies were reduced to atoms, 
completely obliterated by cataclysmic forces. Krakatoa reveled at the center of it all, half of its mass depleted from the multiple eruptions. Its funnels continued to spew debris into the atmosphere. The water around it was a rocking, bubbling, simmering mass of gray sludge. Any boats that hadn't made it out were by now hurled miles inland or sunk to the bottom of the sea. Captain Lindemann and the passengers aboard the Loudon were safe, though it is unclear from Lindemann's journals where they landed. They presumably sailed east to Batavia in central Java. That colony was 100 miles away from Krakatoa and experienced only minor tsunami flooding. As a result, it was the only remaining settlement in the area. Krakatoa, if it could feel, would have been pleased with its works. It had proven itself to be a powerful god, on par with its father. Though that volcano had been so massive as to trigger the Dark Ages, Krakatoa presided over a much more populated area. Prosperous trade routes were now corridors of destruction. Bustling colonies were so thoroughly obliterated that they might as well have never existed. The lush tropical paradise of just a few hours before was now a ruin. It was time for the volcano to put an end to things. At 10.55 a.m., the fourth and final eruption took place. The magma chamber underneath the volcano, the caldera that had powered it all, was spent, completely empty. But the terrible force of the tectonic plates continued to push from below, and the force traveled up the volcano. Three funnels, all dry, all trembling, suddenly, violently, cosmically imploded, the volcano destroying itself in one final massive blast. A sound wave traveled out from the site of the volcano, boasting a tremendous 180 decibels recorded from 100 miles away. The crews aboard vessels 10 miles away were instantly struck deaf. The last sound they ever heard was the loudest sound in recorded history. 3,000 miles away in Australia, workers looked up from their tasks and wondered what that loud crash was from across the ocean. Elsewhere on Earth, the sound wave became too faint to hear, but sound pressure measuring mercury instruments registered the sound wave as circling the globe four times. Back on Sumatra, Johanna, stumbling through the darkness, sensed a terrible stillness as her eardrums were temporarily deafened. She couldn't see anything, and now she couldn't hear anything. She crashed into a tangle of branches, her long hair, her dress, her loose, melted skin, all becoming stuck. As she lay there, she assumed she was dead. Out in the strait, the volcano officially was no more the god immolating itself and sending out one last tsunami in all directions. When the smoke cleared, all that was left was a crater, which soon filled with the rushing water of the ocean. 20 straight hours of eruption had come to an end. Next, 
Johanna picks up the pieces of her shattered life, and we learn whether a new descendant of Krakatoa will once again threaten the Sunda Strait. Now, back to the story. By noon on August 27, 1883, little remained of western Java and southern Sumatra but ash, water, and fire. The volcanic island Krakatoa had exploded, creating the loudest sound in recorded history and one final tsunami to wash away the evidence. 100 miles to the east, in mainland Java, in the Dutch hub of Batavia, a relatively small tsunami flooded the shores, destroying property and killing dozens. But this was nothing compared to the agonizing scene playing out on Sumatra. As Johanna Beierink lay beaten and nearly broken, she heard a faint shouting noise. It was the first thing she had heard in many minutes, maybe hours. Blessedly, her hearing was returning. She didn't believe it at first. She still thought she was dead. But then, she recognized the voice of Willem's clerk, Tojaka. He was saying, Master, be calm. The children are still alive. Upon hearing this, her heart soared, and she wanted only to be with her family again. She forced herself to open her eyes, to open her mouth and cry out, I'm alive, I'm coming, I'm coming. She hobbled back onto her feet, stumbling through the darkness and attempting to follow the sound of Willem's voice. She was likely tripping over the bodies of the thousands of locals who had been outside the hut, most of whom perished. Finally, she made her way to Willem, collapsing into his arms. He was perhaps even more distraught than she was. He cried, let us stay here and die together. Taken aback, Johanna looked him up and down. She replied, no, we shall be rescued and taken to hospital in Batavia. He doubted whether Batavia even still existed. Then, compounding their agony, a servant brought forth their youngest, the baby Yanni. He was dead. Johanna could not cry. Maybe it was the ash filling her throat and stinging her eyes. There was very little moisture to be had. But even deeper, even darker, she couldn't cry because she was glad. Glad that her youngest was free from suffering. Only those who experience true hell can know that a baby is better off dead than to dwell there. But she still had two children to protect. As the heat dissipated, the cold crept in. Black clouds prevented any sunlight from making its way through. One of the Byrinks remaining servants managed to start a fire, which they all huddled around. This proved to be a mistake. The light quickly attracted other desperate survivors from out in the jungle. Johanna could hear footsteps in the darkness. People were moaning and crying. All jumped as the door was thrown open. Villagers who were just as burnt and horrid looking as the Byerinks begged for water. Soon the begging turned into clamoring. The survivors were on the verge of becoming a mob. Johanna turned to Willem and asked if he had any weapons. He said no, but there was an ax behind the bed. 
She urged him to get it while she stood in front of the children. He moved to do so, but as soon as he started to lift the axe, he cried out in pain. He had lost the use of his right hand in the disaster. Johanna was out of patience with her husband. She rushed forward saying, give it to me. Brandishing the axe at the mob, she then had her servant throw ash on the fire. With the light extinguished, the crazed survivors backed off. Johanna didn't know how much time passed after that. They weren't even sure what they were waiting for. Maybe rescue, maybe just death. After a time, they saw a new group of people approaching, carrying torches. Johanna didn't give further detail on them in her diary, but it would seem they were the closest thing to a rescue party they were going to get. The new group claimed that the forest was in danger of burning down, and that, ironically, the safest thing now was to get to the shore. Johanna and Willem shared a look. Then he responded, Wait for us. We'll get ready. From there, they made the impossible hike back to the beach where they did eventually receive rescue. Throughout the journey, Johanna would go to scratch herself or to try and wipe something off her skin, only to realize that her skin was falling off in several places. It would take her body some time to heal, but it would take the landscape much longer. The survivors existed for many weeks in a state of shock. It was hard to comprehend what had happened to them. As the Dutch government sent aid and began to take a census, the numbers were staggering. 165 villages were destroyed. 36,000 were dead. The native population incurred the heaviest losses. The Dutch, though they sustained heavy economic losses, lost only a few dozen lives. Captain Lindemann continued to captain the Loudon until his death, which was only a few years later. Before that, he was awarded the Cross of Gold by the Dutch government for his bravery in saving his crew and passengers. It's unfortunate that the best-known stories come from the colonists rather than the people of the region, given that it was their home and, in large part, their tragedy. Diaries such as those from Johanna Beierink and Captain Lindemann are simply the best record of the event available today. Their stories found their way into European newspapers and soon became one of the best reported global events in history up to that point. Johanna's story in particular resonated with the lords and ladies of high society. They were horrified at the thought of being brought so low by nature. The Beierinks received a somewhat happy ending. Johanna became pregnant again, and the baby was named after the one that had been lost. This may seem a bit odd by modern standards, but in 1883, losing an infant was more common, though still tragic. Naming the baby after the one that had passed was a form of resiliency, refusing to allow the volcano to hinder their family. According to the BBC, Willem retired 13 years later. Krakatoa eventually faded into semi-obscure history, though not before leaving its mark on the rest of the globe. 
Up to a year after the eruption, countries all over the world reported strange colors in the evening sky. London experienced especially vivid sunsets of red and yellow. In India, the moon glowed green. These strange phenomena were all the result of the sulfur released into the atmosphere by Krakatoa. Additionally, the Earth's atmosphere was lowered by one degree Celsius. Though Krakatoa was gone, its ghost shrouded the Earth for years after the eruption. As time passed, the wounds inflicted by the eruption healed, though the wounds inflicted by Dutch colonialism festered and led to war. A series of conflicts, including the Aceh War and multiple nationalist insurrections, meant the locals took their eyes off the Sunda Strait in the decades following 1883. In 1927, the islanders fought to be recognized as a sovereign nation, Indonesia. However, something other than rebellion was bubbling in the waters west of Java and south of Sumatra. In December 1927, fishermen in the area began to notice gas bubbles and flames rising from the strait. By January 1928, a volcanic mound emerged from the waves at the site of the old Krakatoa. The tectonic plates beneath the strait were once again forcing magma to the surface, causing a new island and a new caldera to form. It was dubbed Anak Krakatoa, meaning Child of Krakatoa. It seemed history would repeat itself. According to National Geographic, Anak Krakatoa continued to grow at a rate of over 15 feet per year. It has grown to be almost 3,000 feet tall and is more than a mile across. Such a large volcano will inevitably erupt again. All that is required is that the magma congeals in such a way so as to create pressure on the plates 1,000 feet below the surface. But this time, things would be much, much worse. Batavia, the former Dutch colony, is now known as Jakarta. It is a crowded city of 10 million, rather than the small town of a few thousand that it was in 1883. Thousands of boats choke the waterways between Java and Sumatra. Thousands of planes fill the skies above. Should Anna Krakatoa follow in the footsteps of its father or its grandfather, then it would prove itself the deadliest member of the family. Even with advanced warning from modern seismic instruments, it would be difficult to evacuate everyone in time. Tsunamis would kill millions in seconds. Airplanes would fall from the sky as the air filled with sulfur. And potentially, the changes to the atmosphere would lead to a domino effect worldwide. A cooler climate would cause crops to fail, and millions, if not billions, could starve. However, modern scientists are far better equipped to monitor volcanic activity than the scientists of 1883. Although this wasn't enough to prevent a disaster in December of 2018. Ana Krakatoa let loose with a moderate explosion, which was enough to send two-thirds of its mass crumbling into the ocean. This already sounds like a familiar story. 
the crumbling volcano generated a single tsunami, which traveled to the southern shore of Sumatra, now known as Lampung, and to the western shore of Java, now known as Banten. The wave was not strong enough to reach Jakarta, but 437 people were killed in the surrounding villages. Thousands of homes and hundreds of ships were destroyed. The baby god was merely flexing. Today, field reports from Indonesia indicate that superheated ocean water causes the volcano to emit small explosions daily, and it is rebuilding its lost mass. Tour group Volcano Discovery has registered seismic activity that also suggests more magma is building up beneath the volcano. Though experts used to believe that Ana Krakatoa is not due to erupt for a thousand years, some, such as volcanologist Dr. Tom Pfeiffer, believe it could erupt within months. It's impossible not to think of the Dutch scientists in 1883 who, based on their limited understanding of volcanoes, felt that there was no immediate danger. The volcano is considered to be in its Strombolian phase. This means that the eruptions are constant but mild, the result of pockets of water bursting. However, there is still much we don't understand about volcanoes. Are we really so confident that the volcano won't explode at any moment? If it enters a Vesuvian phase, an eruption in which it empties its magma chamber, then the eruption will be massive and constant, destroying the strait once again. All it would take is the right flow of magma, the right settlement of rock, and then a new god will awaken. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. We'll be back next Monday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Liebeskind, Carly Madden, and Maggie Admire. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Greg Castro and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 